A few months ago, I had a conversation with a longtime supporter of the show, and he brought up a bunch of really interesting questions about my profession that I'd never considered anybody would ever want the answers to. That person is Justin Blackman. He's a writer who's both a huge fan of and creator of children's literature, and he's the owner of his own copywriting business, prettyflycopy.com. And Justin had a bunch of questions for me about public speaking. Public speaking funds a lot of the creative projects I get to do. And I've said before on the show very briefly, but keynotes make up about 40% of my annual revenue. I've given talks to anywhere from 40 people at a corporate event to like four or 5,000 at an industry event. I love public speaking. I love it, both the performance and the content side of it, and also the meta backend business stuff. And anyway, when Justin and I spoke, it went for like 90 minutes and we both realized speaking is this black box and we need to shine some light into it. And it comes in so many different flavors, there's so many types of speakers, and also there's so many misnomers. Not to mention, people often put keynote speaker on their bios to try and sound, let's admit it, self-important, even though maybe they've never really given a professional keynote speech. They're not a, a professional paid speaker. And that's fine. Call yourself what you want. It's just that that kind of warps people's understanding of what this industry is. And it is a very big industry. So I've never really talked publicly or openly about a lot of the stuff we're going to go over today. It's a lot of private things that I don't normally share, and I'm going to air it all out because Justin and a bunch of other people that have been following my work for a while have started asking me questions. So I figured, let me just share it all. How I got started, the biggest myths I first learned to debunk, uh, my speaking rate, which I actually mentioned in brief. That part was kind of scary, but I was like, screw it, I'm going to say it. Uh, that's what we go over today. It's raw, it's refreshing, it's kind of fun. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm keynote speaker, Jay Akunzo. And today, it's another creative cafe. the less edited, more raw mini-series that we do where we go really deep into the creative craft. We talk about the stuff that we usually go over together over coffee, over drinks, not the stuff that gets onto podcasts like the hollow tips and tricks. But today, I turn over the microphone to two co-hosts who interview me. And I gotta be honest, if you're listening, my friend, I kind of hate how much I talk in this episode, but here we are. So the first person talking to me is Justin Blackman. I mentioned him before. And the second is Kira Hug. Kira Hug, and I am co-host of the Copywriter Club podcast. And I recently hosted the Copywriter Club in real life, which is an in-person event in Brooklyn. Uh, we had 130 people attend. So it's really exciting for me to share what I've learned so far because it's like all new to me. What I what I like is I'm a few steps ahead of where some people want to be with public speaking in terms of uh, their careers, but I'm not. I haven't been doing it for 25 years, so I, I wanted to like have one of these creative cafe episodes earmarked this year to talk more deeply about this craft, and and that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. I'm I'm going to sort of like hand over the hosting reins, so to speak, to Kira and Justin, and let you guys run with it. Okay, perfect. So. Um, I have spoken at several events, but I feel like I'm an amateur. So this is really great because I want to be where you are. So I think to start, I'd love to hear more about your story, just how you went from content guy to podcaster, to speaker, to author in such a short time. 
So it's funny you say that because I don't feel like it was such a short time. You know, I feel like there was stuff I did in school and then stuff I did in the first, I guess, call it eight years of my career that that all connected. Like you can't actually rip out a moment and have everything else fall into place the way it did because I think it's all connected. So at the risk of sounding too philosophical there, like, you know, I believe in the butterfly effect. Um, but I think I can put down a few dots on the map that are maybe more important or at least more obvious to me. So one was... I uh, started a community group in Boston called Boston Content. So for years, I was like thrashing in a sales job at Google and hated it. And then I switched to a startup where I moved from sales to marketing and started to write a lot for their blog. And writing for the blog became an ebook and a PDF here and there, which became, you know, all these different types of creative projects. And so they named me director of content at this startup. And I started growing a team of content producers as well. So designers and writers mostly. And I realized, okay, I don't know what content means because I was a former sports journalist in school, but I know I don't want to be in sales anymore. I know it's like a marketing job, which is fine. I was like, I don't really love marketing. Like back then I was thinking that. And, but I like this content notion. I just don't know what this career path is. So I reached out to a bunch of friends in the startup ecosystem in Boston. They connected me to the head of video at a local agency, a woman by the name of Aristia Rosenberg. And Aristia was director of content as well or something to that effect, but she was squarely in video. I didn't touch video. She came out of Hollywood where she used to edit DVDs and trailers. I came out of sports journalism and then sales at Google. So we had radically different jobs, radically different backgrounds, same title and same love of creativity and craft in the business world. So together, we slowly built a local meetup group that spawned into what it is today, which is 2000 people run by the third generation of leaders and volunteers. And they have monthly meetups and quarterly events and a newsletter with jobs and updates and a blog and now a podcast this year. So I'm I'm amazed at what it's become. But that got me a bit of a personal platform and market awareness. And it also just gave me practice because I was moderating panels and sometimes giving short speeches And then that led to like general assembly classes and some local companies inviting me to present. Like I I would say that I started as a community builder and then moved into the role of a presenter, which is like, hey, I know stuff about how to do things in content marketing. I don't have any big ideas. I couldn't write the book at that point. It was all how-to stuff, but I thought it was entertaining how I delivered it and it was how-to that people needed to hear. So I went from community organizer to presenter. So I'm going to stop there because there, there's like a lot more I could say. There's a third wave where I started into like keynote speaking, but did that all make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. No, I think that's exactly how I got into it as well from a community standpoint. But I think um, I didn't totally recognize and connect the dots until you shared your experience too. But that's a great way to get into it if you're building your own platform and then you can step into that presenter role. Yeah. And and I would say this, like a lot of people undervalue the participation in the community. So a lot of people want to jump right to like, how do I get speaking opportunities, even if they're not paid? And the real first opportunity is to like go to things that have speakers and volunteer. Um, So like I pitched in once in a while at the local chapter of Creative Mornings, and then I was invited to speak at Creative Mornings and Boston content was wholly built by me. And so like there was all this, there was a slow progression over, I'd say, three years between me building Boston content from nothing and me getting the invite to speak for the first time for money. Um, So that was like a three year period of like lots and lots of public speaking, zero dollars. But the first paid gig I had, it was like 
oh, people get paid for this? Wait a second. Because I, I was invited to New York for some startups event where they were like, hey, we really like your blog content, Jay. They, so they've been reading me uh, on my side blog, which is another thing I'd point to, side projects, even if it's not a community group. Although I think community groups plug in more directly to speaking, but launching side projects is the story of my career, both for learning and awareness. Um, so the, he, he'd been reading, this founder had been reading my personal blog. So he was like one of five people <laughs> at that point. Uh, and then he'd also, I think either attended a Boston content event or recommended somebody attend and they came back with positive reviews. So he invited me for like 2,500 bucks to speak as like one of the, I don't know, seven or eight speakers there. So it was by no means a keynote. But at that point I was like, whoa, okay, I didn't know you can get paid to do this type of thing. And so that was like another big, big dot on the map. I don't know, Kira and Justin, have you have you guys like experienced things in your career where people think it's something you proactively chase, but in reality, if you look back, it's just sort of like, actually the first opportunity just kind of happened to me and then I made sense of it. I've had a few situations where it felt like I was in the right place at the right time, but looking back, uh, you have to work pretty hard to to get yourself in that right place. So there, there's definitely more to it, but yeah, sometimes the, the best opportunities just happen to people that show up. Kira, any examples you can think of? Yeah, I think for me, it's been um, taking speaking gigs where they're handed to me. And I think that's great. But I'm also thinking that it would be helpful to be more proactive, right? Especially if you know, I want to be a keynote speaker, I want to get paid to speak, I want to be really good at what I do. Um, I think that changes the conversation and what you do. And that's what I'd love to hear more about from you, because I feel like I've had the accidental opportunities where I challenge myself and take on a speaking gig. And it's frightening and it's great and I learn. But um, to really get to the point where you're, you're getting paid and you're speaking at really exciting events and you feel confident and great in what you're doing, it seems very intentional at that point. So can you talk a little bit more, Jay, about that transition from, from events really landing in your lap to being really intentional and knowing, I want to be a keynote, I want to get paid, I want this to be part of my business what do you have to do to get to that space? Right. So it's 2000 and let's say, I think 2013. And I'd, I'd done the Boston content thing, was still running it, still growing it, kind of in the middle of that whole process. But I'd moved from the startup to uh, HubSpot, where I led the content team for a year. And one of the, my fellow team managers had a speech that she was slated to give in Southern California, Orange County, and she couldn't make it. And she asked me, because she'd seen me do Boston content things, again, like when you launch side projects and really work hard at them, I think like blessings come back around in unexpected ways. Like she had seen that group, had I think even attended an event or at least just vaguely knew that I did stuff having to do with speaking and seemed like somebody who's animated enough to command attention on a stage, I guess. Uh, and she asked if I would pinch hit for her. And so I flew out for $0 all the way across the country from Boston to the OC arrived at like 1030 at night, pitch black, drove through pitch black uh, in an Uber to a hotel, woke up, opened the curtains. And it was like literally a hotel on the beach. And I was like, you know what? I could get used to this. <laughs> and so at that point, I had done nothing to pro proactively get speeches, right? This is someone who asked me to pinch hit. It was reactive. But the thing I was always proactive on and at that point knew was like, okay, when I write stuff, good things happen. So while I was there, I gave my talk and then the closing keynote was Joe Polizzi, the founder of Content Marketing Institute. 
So one of like the biggest names in marketing speaking, especially at that time, um, before he sold the company. And so he spoke and I was like, screw it. I'm going to go to the back where I, where he was like checking his phone after his speech. And like, while people were wrapping up the event, I'm going to leave my seat and go talk to him and just introduce myself. And we hit it off. Like we're both Italian. We're both like content marketers. Like, I don't know. We had some sort of weird bond early on and I'm proud to call him a friend and mentor today. But I was like able to impress him enough that he said, Hey, why don't you write for our blog? And I was like, perfect. This is exactly why I wanted to talk to this guy. Cause I knew there was something of value that I could offer his organization and vice versa. So I started blogging for content marketing Institute and just sort of got, and I got invited to then speak at their event. And so that was when I shifted. So 2014 from reactive to proactive. Now, granted that that's probably like two to three years of just taking what came working really hard to like understand things and learn how to see the world through writing and community building and then practice the craft in a zero stakes environment because every presentation I gave was free. Now I'm going to Content Marketing Institute in 2015 and I got to come up with some big idea because I want to impress people. And the reason this is taking so long to get to what you're asking for, Kira, which is like, how did you get paid? It's because I couldn't have gotten paid without doing all these things. You know, like there's no way in hell I could have if I if I hadn't put in the time, put in the work. So if you're like, I need to get paid right now to speak and haven't before, and nor am I really doing much of this stuff, it's too late. Like you have to be laying this groundwork first. It's building a house. If you're like, I need a I need a roof right now, it's like, okay, well, you have none of the other parts that build up to the roof. So you better start with the foundation. So I just want to throw that caveat in there and that I know I'm taking a while to arrive at the answer, but I kind of have to. So I don't know. I feel like I hate my, the sound of my own voice right now. So you, you guys should say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say it's interesting how you started off as more reactive because I've actually been talking to a couple of other speakers that are that are or a lot of other writers that are starting to speak at more engagements. And I'm like, how are you doing this? It seems like you're everywhere right now. And they usually just say, I asked. And it seems so simple, but it's like I was kind of sitting back waiting for people to ask me and wondering why it never happened. And then I was like, oh, I need to be proactive. But you're sort of the opposite or you've been reactive to it. I've been reactive in this. I was reactive early on in the speaking thing. I was incredibly proactive in the fact that I was going to get my thinking out into the world. Ah, right. Yeah. And ve- and the, the different vehicle was was where I applied it. I applied it to writing. I applied it to uh, I tinkered on some podcasts early on that went nowhere. I tinkered on some video that went nowhere, like articles, graphics. I would just make stuff and put it out in the world publicly, knowing full well most people wouldn't care. But it didn't matter to me. It's like I was getting better. And, you know, I, I found answers not by researching or asking people for advice, but through the act of creation, I would find the information I needed, whether it was like the next idea or clarity around this idea or whatever. You know, I just got better faster, I think, because I went to like a creative gym multiple times a week, which was my side projects. So I was incredibly proactive there. And the thing is, I think there's no reason everybody shouldn't be doing this. And I'm not saying it because I have like survivorship bias, like look at me, I did it. And so you did it too. It's just like, there's no stakes. No one's going to read your thing. No one's going to listen to your thing or watch your thing the first time you put it out there. So there's no problem in putting out bad work. In fact, I think it's the only way to get to good work. So I went through a lot of bad work first through projects, but then through 
speaking. And the Content Marketing Institute, the uh, Content Marketing World first speech in 2015 was my first chance to step back and be like, okay, I now need to be a speaker. How does that work? Okay. One other note with that is it builds your platform. So once you do give the speech, if people go to look you up afterward, you they've got a whole library of your content that supports everything that you've been speaking about. Exactly. And, and I'll tease something I want to say later, but I want to make sure Kara gets her question out. But like, I thought it was about digital fame that gets speaking gigs. I could not have been more wrong. So I'll tease that. We'll, we'll come back to that. But Kira, I know you want to chime in. I want to get to that. That sounds better than my question. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to echo what Justin said about asking to speak on stage because yes, there are multiple events, different sizes, but for someone, as someone who hosts an event, and again, it's a, it's a smaller event with 130 people, copywriters, um, but as someone who really is the gatekeeper, I guess you could say, we did have a lot of people request to speak on our stage. And it was a pretty popular stage in the copywriting space. And it really did help when people reached out to us and said, hey, are you still looking for speakers? I really want to speak on your stage. I could talk about these topics. And it doesn't mean we said yes to everyone. At some point, we just had no more space. But um, just just speaking up for yourself and putting your name out there really does help if you're just getting started. So um, that does work. And then I also wanted to just talk about frequency. So for, for you, Jay, you know, once you take it seriously and you realize this is something I want to do, what does the frequency look like just to improve and to improve the craft of speaking? Because that's something I'm thinking about. Okay, I would like to speak professionally. Again, I'm an amateur at this point. Uh, but how often do I have to book these speaking gigs to really excel and get to that point? Because it can feel really daunting, especially for parents with young children who are like, I can't prepare for a new speaking gig every month. Is it enough to do it twice a year or once a year and just go all in? Can that help me get to that level or will it just take more time? So can you just speak to the frequency and what it really takes to practice and to get to the point where, where you are today? You can, I can tell you what it took me. I, I can't really say with precision, this is the number per this unit of time for everybody. Because like you said, there's different circumstances at home. There's also different goals. If you want to speak twice a year, great. Um, I have friends and mentors who speak literally 70 times a year. Oh. I don't want to be on the road that much, um, right. nor do I want to have that much of my revenue coming from who I am and, and what, like, you know, my time spent, I'd like to build something. I'd like to build multiple revenue streams. Um, so my goal is to do 12 to 15 gigs a year. And I'm sort of, I'm, I'm at the, the volume I want right now. And I, then I want to just keep raising my rate and the profile of the stage. So other people are like, I need to raise volume. So it all depends on your goals, depends on who you are. There's just so many variables where I can't say it's this number, period. But for me, I found myself having to work at this more, spend more time writing, researching, rehearsing. Um, the more I, the more the stakes grew, honestly. So like if you, if you're not getting paid at all and you're speaking very little, sure, don't rehearse. I don't know a single professional speaker who's not an actual celebrity whose business is heading in the right direction that doesn't rehearse. Um, there's only two exceptions aside from real celebrity that I've encountered. One is an executive at a massive brand. So they use the brand logo and maybe their title there to hide behind the fact that they're not actually a 
really great speaker, but they come from a really great company and they maybe are really great uh, executives. But then I've, I've talked to some of those people as well after they left the company and their, their lead pipeline dries up because they're no longer being hired to fill seats to sell tickets because that event organizer can't put a logo like uh, they can't put a giant logo on their site saying the executive from this company will be there. It doesn't work when it, they're the former executive of that company. So they're like complaining, why aren't people hiring practitioners? Why aren't people hiring ex- like former executives who have done it? It's because what you did was in the past and you also have to deliver on the stage. As soon as you open your mouth, nobody cares who you are unless you're a legitimate celebrity. You have to deliver. And even then, Jerry Seinfeld is famous for saying he only gets five to 10 minutes of being Jerry Seinfeld before he has to make you laugh or people dislike his act, right? So it's it's a meritocracy, which is amazing, right? So to earn your way up in a meritocracy, what do you have to do? You have to put in the work. And so for me, I will research once a week. I research stories. I write them in my newsletter. Um, Multiple times a month, I publish stories to my podcast. And then I mine those stories for material for the speeches. Um, The speeches themselves are sort of like pseudo practices. I will film... Um, every gig that I do, I'll use my phone to film myself and also sometimes film the audience so I can see what moments work and what moments don't. And then I try to re-engineer a little bit each time. I also rehearse like crazy. So if I know a speech is coming up about two weeks before that speech, even though I've done that talk, you know, 90% of it, I've done a hundred times before, literally, I will do that two weeks out. I'll rehearse maybe twice or three times the week, two weeks out. And then the week of, I'll probably do like four or five more rehearsals. And then in my hotel, I'll do two to three dry runs in my hotel room. Um, I don't necessarily film those, but I'm doing those. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not just talking it, I'm performing it as if I was in the room. And so it, you got to rehearse. I, I, I actually coach several keynote speakers. Um, it's like a small service that I offer. And every single one that I've worked with, when they're like, I'm ready to pay for a coach, the first question I ask, and I always get the same answer, is do you rehearse? And the answer is no. Or it's a sheepish, like, kind of. It's just, it's the through line. When you feel you're stagnating, usually the cause isn't, I don't have the ideas or the skills. It's, they're not putting in the time to rehearse. So how often should you do that? It totally depends, Kira. But but I, but I cannot stress enough how the work here is not being on a stage, nor being famous or anything like that. The work is creating a speech worthy of the full audience and worthy of somebody coming up after to invite you to keep speaking. Like that's the goal. That's the work. And it actually doesn't happen digitally. It's not like a social media following. It doesn't happen on the stage in the moment. It happens when you're by yourself working on the speech alone. It's interesting. You mentioned Jerry Seinfeld and I've been taking a few stand-up comedy courses and I'm constantly amazed at how much of of uh, the, uh, the success of a presentation actually comes from just the physicality of it and the movements and your your presentation of the words. So, um, and I know that rehearsal is a huge part of that, and it takes a ton of effort to make it look like you're giving this information for the first time. And you mentioned the last time we spoke about how many hours you usually prepare for one single speech, like from the time that you're get, you get. Uh, to your hotel, to the time you get on stage. I was wondering if you could uh, speak on that for a minute. So, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the question. I just get so nervous answering numbers-based questions. Like, like I do this in my podcast because it's a narrative-style show, so it's it sounds way different than a usual show, except for these types of episodes. 
people are like, how long does it take you to make that? I'm like, but but we're different people and we're making different shows. Like I, I can't, if I say eight or 10 or two or three, what does it matter? What matters is you work on it until you are ready. Because otherwise, if I say eight and you can't do it in eight, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm worthless. No, you're just a different person, right? Or you're at a different stage in this. Or if I say two, uh, or if I say eight rather, and you feel ready after two, great. That's awesome. But I, I don't think we, we got to get away from looking to squeeze the number down. Um, so, so I think I, 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 this isn't, sorry, I, this sounds like kind of an affront to your question, Justin, but like, <laughs> you're okay. I get it. I just want people listening to understand that, like, don't anchor to that stuff. You, you can't, you, you just, it's not, if that's what you're anchoring to, then you're treating it like a chore to be done quicker. And there's no way you're going to succeed. Um, if you treat it like a craft, if it's like, it's something you get to do instead of something you have to do, then you make it a priority, right? I get to watch Game of Thrones with my wife when my baby goes to bed. Like we're making it a priority, but you know what we're not making a priority is working out during that hour, right? So we all have the time for stuff. We just have to re-engineer our priorities. So I don't know how many hours it takes me to do this stuff because I've never once tracked it nor tried to diminish it. I only do this until I feel like I can walk up on stage and deliver the entire performance. And it is a performance. Um, Content and structure in the right flow, saying the right things, moving in the right ways, you know, having my voice sound the right way. I can do all that stuff in my sleep. I don't need slides, nothing. I have slides. I don't need them. And thank God, because one time my slides actually kicked out on me. I had 10, 10 or 15 minutes left in the speech and something stuck on the clicker. It rifled to the end and the screen went black. Oh, no. And I was sick that day. I was like dying. I was like chugging tea before I got on stage. And I, I, you know what? I was like, screw it. I got to go even all more all in than I was previously. And I could do that material from memory. Um, so how long does it take for me until I get there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's clear from the number of rehearsals you mentioned prior, the two weeks prior to the event in the hotel room that you um, put a lot into it and you know when you're ready. Can we Talk about the early days of rehearsal, though, and maybe it's even for a new presentation or a presentation that you've recently re-engineered. Where do you start with the rehearsal before you get to the point where you're in the hotel room? Do you have note cards? Um, are you working off of notes um, when you're really in those early days trying to just nail the first few pieces of it? Yeah. So I let's go back to where I left you with the story. So 2015, I'm getting on stage in a few weeks for Content Marketing Institute's big annual event, Content Marketing World. And I'd gotten that after all that bricklaying of, you know, Boston content and local free gigs and the first $2,500 speech and, you know, the HubSpot speech and talking to Joe Polizzi and writing for their blog. And now I'm finally going onto a stage where I feel like, okay, people in this room hire speakers for money. So I'm like, I got to be proactive, not reactive here. I'm going to create a speech. I'm not just going to like engineer a talk. I'm going to build a product that if it works in the room, I know I can give this speech over and over and over again and keep refining it just like a stand-up act. So I, I can't exactly remember the topic. It was very close to content marketing how-to with my bent, which is creativity. Um, but I remember I, I scripted it out and then I put the slides together, um, which I'm thankful I did. Actually, you know what? That might not be the case. I think that point at that point, I was still I was still novice enough that I was doing slides first, which is a nightmare because you're designing way too much before you know what you're going to say. But anyways, I put together the deck and the talk track uh, and it was almost scripted verbatim, like not quite, but almost. And then I remember going over it about 
two weeks out. Like I feel like I finished pretty last minute and I'm rehearsing and I'm rehearsing and I sought out some content online about like ways to perform better because I felt good in my knowledge, but I felt a little bit less good in my performance, not my personality, but just like where to move, how to move, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I know that's a thing people work on. And I found some sort of material around blocking, which is intentional movement. And it would talk about like, staying still when you make a point. And I knew from myself and who I am, I move constantly. People can like almost hear me moving when I speak on a microphone right now. I mean, gosh. So I did something terrible. I think it was subconscious, but I watched the video recently. I would stick my hand in my pocket in an attempt to like keep my Italian American hands from waving all over the place (laughs) and sit still. Like this is my first big speech and I'm up there in like a nice jacket with like my nice slides that I'd worked on. I rehearsed it probably like five or six times, which wasn't enough by the way. And I look like such a slouch. I look like a (laughs) joker because I'm sticking my hand in my pocket every so often to make a point. And it was like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? You know, and I think the answer is I wasn't. But that's an example of like, were I more consciously performing in the room when I rehearsed, I would have used this idea of blocking to meld it to who I am as a person instead of trying to fit myself into some mold of like what everyone else said I had to do, which was sit still. And I couldn't sit still. So I tried to engineer that and it was terrible. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like that early stuff was, man, it was not good. Yeah, no, that definitely answers my question. I I actually want to hear more about movement because I struggle with this so bad. I, I, yeah, I mean, I can practice and I just don't know what to do with my body at times. And so I feel like I have, I found a couple articles. Uh, You probably have a lot more resources on this, but if, if you're not necessarily used to being on the stage, you're not a performer, you're not a dancer, um, and it feels foreign to you, what are some ways to just kind of figure out what style works for you, especially if you are maybe less expressive and you're not Italian? Um, what can you do to just kind of figure out how to work the stage without looking ridiculous? The number one thing that, that, that like really kills speakers, it's artifice, right? Artifice. When you, when you like play up the humor in a really cheesy way, not because you're not funny. It's just because you were trying to be funny like somebody you watched in a YouTube video. And it's like when you try to copy something that's so dissimilar to who you are, that's the issue. So this is such a self-awareness exercise, like most things in career, but but very much so because it is you on a stage. So the first step, I think I would throw out all the knowledge online and I would start by filming yourself. And do that in a room privately if you have no upcoming gigs, but like film yourself so you can critique yourself. Like you need to be a ravenous consumer of your own work. Just like as a writer, you need to like know what the consumer is going through or as a podcaster, I always listen to my episodes partly because I want this show to exist and I'm proud that I made it, but mostly because I'm like reviewing it. I'm like, it's like game tape for me, like I'm an athlete or something. Um, And so that's the first step is actually like record yourself and perform. Um, and you're going to find awkward moments. Like it's almost like reading out loud what you've written. Uh, and so you can catch things that are so obvious. So video is that thing for speaking, I think. And for me, it was about the, I'm so animated that it was about like micro motions. I'm never going to, I'm never going to be like standing still next to a podium, making a point and then pausing and thinking and, and miming the thinking motion and then walking slowly to the other thing. No, I'm going to be all over the place. I'm a windshield wiper, but I can pause myself long enough to deliver a point. And actually, the thing I've learned most is because I speak quickly, I'm not trying to slow myself down. 
I'm going to speak quickly. And I think you're even hearing me do it now and pause in between those bursts. But if I just spoke quickly and didn't even pause, I would just keep meandering. It would sound like a run on sentence. And you're, you're even hearing it right now. It's like way too much all at once. And this is how I used to speak all the time. And it was way too much over. Oh, it was overwhelming for the audience because I never paused in between those sentences. So what you're trying to do is very difficult, but it becomes this super empowering thing. It's like a toy. I love it so much. Like getting on a stage and knowing I am in full control. I'm going to command the room. I'm going to command the emotions. I'm going to command my movements, my voice, my content. Like getting there is so fulfilling and it's always somewhat elusive. But when you're like in the moment, it's like the most mindful thing you can do, right? You're in flow. And I don't think you can get there without filming yourself first. I love how you said you described yourself as a windshield wiper. It was, uh, it was very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got a question because you said that you did between 12 and 15 talks a year. Now, oh no, that's what I do now. Right. I started my first paid gig. So, Content Marketing Institute was like my lone big gig for free for the first two years. I really didn't speak much in between. Um, but I started to host a podcast. So, I guess in a way I was speaking. And then my, my, uh, my goal was to get a bigger and bigger stage at CM world because they rate the speakers. They have audience surveys and I knew they reward high rated speakers with a bigger stage each year. And so while I was trying to level up those stages and I eventually won the opening keynote to the whole event, like all 4,000 people. But while I was doing that, I met a guy by the name of Andrew Davis, who was a keynote speaker and an author. And he was starting a management company and he'd seen some of my video and I reached out about having him speak at Boston Content, but we got beers. And, and when he said, I'm starting a management company, would you like to be my guinea pig? I was like, hell yeah. So almost everything I've learned, I've learned from Drew and uh, the first year together. And this is to your point, Justin, I didn't do 12 to 15. I did like 25 to 30 <laughs> gigs and probably like five to 10 were free. Wow. Um, I love Drew Davis's stuff, by the way. The loyalty loop videos that he does are fantastic. Oh, he's unbelievable. And he's such a systems thinker. And historically, I wasn't that he taught me different frameworks and heuristics, which I'm happy to speak to, of how to build a speech and manage your business. I want to talk about money, um, because I feel like this is this is where it's really hard to get real answers from um, and, and to find real answers on the internet about how much speaking gigs pay and what's really realistic too, because I think we also hear these huge numbers from keynote speakers like Gary Vee, and that's just not practical or realistic to many of us. So do you, can you talk a little bit about um, some numbers maybe early on, uh, what you got paid earlier on, and then even how it feeds into your business and can make a lot of sense for a lot of businesses as far as potentially um, fulfilling other sales or services or programs? Totally. So the for the most important kernel to know uh, to work your way into fees is how leads happen. And I think people believe they have to be famous, like Gary Vaynerchuk, who I think is tipped from business speaker to celebrity speaker, um, so he can charge six figures. But I think it's actually about in the room delivering what Drew taught me is a referable speech. So people come up to you after the speech, during the event or in the days that follow, and ask you to speak at their event. So you want inbound, what, what Drew calls stage-side leads. And that's how I built my business, is getting stage-side leads. Um, so I was able to build a business that was funding everything else I wanted to do before I wrote the book, before most people knew who I was, 
That's still the case, by the way. And before I really had mastered like the diversification of my revenue, like I didn't have a business whose customers would hire me to speak separately. So I did something very weird thanks to my mentorship under Drew and thanks to all the groundwork I think I laid, which is I didn't do any of the sort of air game stuff at first. Uh, and I built the equivalent revenue of the people that are now like, I have a famous book and I'm trying to speak. And they think they have to get the famous book first or the big social following to speak. It's actually about if you deliver a speech in the room, are people coming up to you to invite you to keep speaking? With me so far? Totally. Cool. Um, so it's all about knowing that it's about lead flow from the room, then looking at events, not like they're all created equal. Um, so, so I don't know if this actually exists in the speaking world, but I've termed them pipeline and backstop events. So a pipeline event is regardless of fee, is the audience rife with leads. So content marketing world doesn't really pay. Um, that's fine because almost everybody at that, at that event can hire speakers. A lot of them come from big brands. A lot of them have trade publications. Um, an in-house brand organization, a brand that's having a team meeting, everybody in the room works for that department and that company. So they're not going to hire me you know, maybe for a couple of years, if ever again. So I'm going to probably charge full fee for that, but I'd be willing to speak at a massive event where I know people in the room hire speakers for free. Right, so you have this sliding scale that you have to get good at sniffing out. Um, oftentimes, it's like talking to other speakers, looking at the events, you know, seeing who's spoken there before, talking to the event managers, that kind of thing. But then to price it out, it's you know, you don't raise money, you don't raise your rates when you um, feel ready. You have to ask for more than you think you're worth, because no one's going to pay you more than you're worth. That's for damn sure. And so like, I thought $5,000 was an incredibly high number when I first started speaking, but that was my opening rate. And the more I started talking to keynote speakers, the more they were like, you should be at 75. And then I went to 75 the next year. And they were like, you should be at 10. And then I went to 10 the next year. <laughs> and now I'm at 15 plus. And it's like, that's insane, right? Let's take a moment to appreciate how bananas that is. And I get it. <laughs> I work so freaking hard to ensure that, that I'm worth it. And I add other things around the speech to add value to the room. But that's nuts. <laughs> like, I can't complain one moment about being a public speaker. Because not only do I love the craft, but it's lucrative, right? You get paid to speak. Some people never get uh, awarded or recognized for decades and decades of hard work. I do 45 minutes on a stage. And I literally get people clapping before and after I go up there. Like, that's bonkers so like it's a profoundly humbling profession and i can't stand all the ego in the industry because and now i'm on my soapbox but you, you got me there because like what you, be thankful your dial needs to be set to grateful at all times because look at what you're doing and what you're getting paid wow okay that was really interesting as far as the cycle i had no idea the seasons do make sense but i had no idea and the way that you laid it out is is really helpful just to think about it strategically I need to I need to throw in a giant caveat. Every year I feel like the bottom is going to fall out on me. Every year. Every year I start the year in a panic. And I know last year intellectually I know this is stupid because I did this last year. But at the beginning of this year I was like I have no gigs. I had zero gigs to begin my year, right? And now I'm actually getting a lot of volume. Last year I had a lot of gigs booked at the beginning of the year. So like it's inconsistent, it's scary, like if you rely on it, especially if it's your full-time job, it's nuts. Um, it, it's, I made it sound like I have it all figured out. I have a theory figured out, <laughs> like uh, in terms of practice, it's, it's always hard and it's always frightening. 
I've got a logistical question about building the presentation, like your slide deck. Is that something that you take on yourself through PowerPoint? Do you bring in a designer? What type of software and uh, you know what what's what's the behind the scenes on actually building out the deck? So I firmly believe that if your job is to create stuff or your job is not to create stuff and you are delivering a created project, like you're an executive who manages sales, but you wrote a book. If people think it was built by you, it better have been damn sure built by you. Otherwise, you need to credit the person who was involved. So I have a real problem with people who write a book and byline it without citing their ghostwriter. And it's ghostwritten because I feel like it's a bait and switch. Like you'd want to know that those words aren't exactly that person's. I have a real problem with people who are keynote speakers and they don't do their own slide design or have a hand in it. Now, you can hire a designer. That's fine. I'm not saying you need to credit the designer necessarily, but you have to be the creative director who's like coaching that designer. There's a willingness I think that people have to say, I'm going to hand this over a wall and you're going to hand back a final product. Um, And I've seen that with slide design before. And A, I don't think it leads to very good results. Uh, But B, while I love paying freelancers who are creative, I, I think it, I think it's incumbent upon you to deliver the thing that people believe it's implied that you did. So slide design for me personally is a part of that. So I do all my own slide design. I do all my own everything like researching and scripting the show. Unless you hear me say Tally Gabriel, the co-writer and producer of this show. Thank you to her. Right. Cause I'm saying, well, I had help. It wasn't just me. So I, I, for me, I like to do it that way. Not everyone's going to be that way. Not everyone's going to have bad intentions when they're contracting out. I get it. But I I just have a bias around this. I'm curious about um, experience and gaining practice. So I'm thinking about whether or not I should pursue an organization like Toastmasters um, or a similar organization to improve my speaking skills, or if I should just book gigs and just do it rather than joining an organization, just get in front of a room full of people and practice that way. I know there's probably a hybrid combination of the two, but just wondering if you have a strong opinion about that. I think it's about how you learn and grow personally. So like I'd ask you, Kira, do you have a sense for like take podcasting? So you host a podcast. How did you learn to host a podcast? Did you do a lot of reading or did you talk to a lot of people or did you try and just you know, tinker your way forward or was it a blend? It was just doing it, doing it and learning and improving from there. But and also listening to a lot of podcasts. I love the, the platform, but yeah, I'm not really the type to read a book and then do it and learn that way. Yeah. So I, um, I'm the same way personally. So we, we're similar in this way. Uh, Justin, same question to you. Do you, do you learn by, do you think reading, talking to people, doing, or some kind of blend? Uh, doing is always best. Okay, cool. So this is a terrible crowd because we're all the same. <laughs> but it was going to be before you guys ruined it. <laughs> that, Thanks, Justin. Right? My bad. Uh, oh, Kira, you're just as culpable. So um, <laughs> as am I. I. I think it's about looking at other things in your life and being like, how do I, how do I learn? How do I improve? And applying that to this too. So for me, it was always tinkering and it was always learned by doing. Um, so that's why I rehearse a ton. That's why I did a community group and took a lot of free gigs. That's why, you know, I always wished that there was a small comedy club, but for keynote speakers, like some VC firm or business media company that said, Hey, in our off hours, we're going to open the office up for you to come try out new material to a small crowd. Like I want that so bad. I have a billion things going on, so I can't build it, but I would, I want that so bad. And cause I learned by doing. And then as I actually started to get more senior or more, more experience, rather, there's no titles here. So like more experienced, 
I started, it, it started going down in terms of doing it. Cause it's like, okay, I don't want to do it more. Like I want to cap it, uh, because of the travel, not because of the craft. And so I've started to like, look at more people who are out there. I've started to talk to more individuals who are out there. I haven't yet joined a group. I've heard some good things. I've heard some bad things. Um, so I think my, my ratio now is probably like, I don't know, 75, 25 talking to people is probably 25% and 75% is like me just trying stuff. I would love to just go back in time and, you know, I've seen your videos, so I know you're, you're very good at what you do now and you've had a lot of experience. Can you just paint a picture of what you were like on stage in the early days, just to kind of, um, just to bring this back to reality that we all have to start somewhere. So I basically just want to hear about your flaws, your early, your flaws on the early days before you really improved and gained experience and really are where you are today. So I mentioned sticking my hands in my pocket. Good Lord. What was I thinking? That was the worst. <laughs> Nothing's going to be more egregious than that. I would say write a lot. I would finish a thought and I'd say as content marketers, we do this, right? And then, you know, typically we go to that, right? And then you know, it was just everywhere. It was just over and over again. And watching a video was the only way I caught it. So that there is the power of video. I was like, oh my goodness, what the heck? So I said that a lot. I always used to start, I thought it could be my thing. I always used to start with a story that tied back to the fact that I'm Italian. And I think I did win some people over that way and build rapport. But what if I could build rapport and win people over by saying something about the thing I'm there to present instead of me? And I'm a firm believer that personal stories are helpful, but I'm a vessel. Like I have gone and researched some stuff, tinkered on stuff, thought about stuff longer than you because I'm ex excited about or obsessed with this topic. And I am there to present what I've found. I am not there to present me, nor am I there to present my own experience. I think that's what kills a lot of keynote speakers too, is you only get so far unless you're a self-help speaker. Mel Robbins is the highest booking keynote female keynote speaker on the circuit today. And she's got a lot of other great stuff going on, on around that for her business. She's a self-help author. Her book is the five second rule. Her book isn't five seconds to profitability. Uh, Jay Bear is one of the most booked business speakers on the planet. And he's now a Hall of Fame keynote speaker. Jay has a couple of personal spe speeches or uh, personal moments in his speech, but he is there to bring you what he's found. And because he's not speaking to you, he's speaking to you, the professional, or a group of you, a collective you, the team. He's trying to solve a problem for your business, which might address to start you, the individual, but in the context of your work, he's not a self-help author. He's a business help author, if you want to look at it that way. So I was very much giving kind of like a, I was putting a self-help lens like, oh, I'm the speaker. So I'm just going to start with a story about me. Uh, I was putting that lens over what was not that type of speech. So I think those were the, some of the ticks that I had early on. And then I've kind of thrown that, those out the window. So you mentioned that you like to record the audience. And I think, you know, something huge that I'm taking away from this conversation is just uh, the amount of self-reflection involved in this process and how that really leads to improvement, which is something we all know, but you actually practice it and it's worked for you. Uh, so by recording the audience, I'm just wondering if there if there were any surprises for you by when you watch those videos, anything that just was a bit shocking uh, once you realize the audience reacted in a certain way, maybe that you didn't expect? 
there was one crowd where this one guy in the front kept giving me like a wink and a kissy face and I wasn't <laughs> noticing. No, 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 no. Uh, I, so I wish I had something. Honestly, it's, it's pretty predictable because people there in a way are performing as well. Like there's a social dynamic in the room where if one, if a group of people start laughing, everyone's going to start laughing. If, you know, it's almost like permission to laugh. And as a speaker, you can actually harness that. So if you're doing something super goofy and you stay in that moment, you know, this is a comedian thing I learned too. I, by the way, I look at whenever a comedian talks about their craft, I am obsessed with that material. Like comedians talking about how to be comedians or how to develop an act. I love that stuff. I learned so much about it. So about, about speaking. So one of the things I got from that world was stay in the bit. So if you're frustrated and the punchline is you frustrated, don't laugh with the audience. Stay stay frustrated. What I've learned though is yes, that gets a bigger laugh or that hammers home the emotion. But especially if it's a joke, you can also then break. You know, kind of they talk about it in SNL, they break and laugh. If you're holding the frustrated face, you can hold it, hold it, hold it. You sense the room is dying off, but then you can also just sort of like laugh, <laughs> uh, you know, like like knowingly. <laughs> and you gotta ma- you have to master that. It can come off as total shtick. And if you're not actually feeling like laughing, don't do it. But I have moments in my speech where like I love the fact that you're laughing, and I want to let it, let you in on that. And also, what I've noticed is it catches more people because if it was like a rolling chuckle. I can get a little bit more and also win over a few more people who need almost like that permission, not from their peers, but from the person on the stage to laugh. So I just, I just love that kind of little moment. Um, I so forgot your question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so bad. I'm not used to talking about myself no, here. It's just like, That's, it was just about any surprises in the audience from watching them. Oh yes. I think it's just how much they play off each other. Yeah. That's surprising. You know, if, if, if someone next to you is checking your phone, it's like a yawn. You're like, I better check my phone. Don't know. I'm not controlling this motion, but here's my phone. Um, so everybody plays off each other in the room. You're in it together. I think listening to all of this, it's really exciting, but it's also a bit overwhelming too, right? Especially even thinking about the chuckle. And I've seen that chuckle and I love when speakers do that. And I would love to get to the point where I can do that and strategically and keep the audience going. And that's at the level you're at today. But for someone who is a um, a new speaker or an aspiring speaker, what would you say to them to just make progress, like a baby step they can take that feels actionable and less overwhelming so they can move forward on this path and not worry about maybe a lot of the things that we've talked about today that aren't might not be relevant to them immediately? If you want to get good at writing, Justin, what do you have to do? Practice. Yep. If you want to get good at podcasting, Kira, what do you have to do? Watch Netflix. <laughs> ah, there you go. So you're not going to get good at podcasting if you're watching Netflix, right? Like you're not going to get good at this craft unless you rehearse, 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 rehearse. And when you think you're done, rehearse a little bit more. Like there's only one way to get good at this and that's to do it a lot. And not everybody gets invited on. Like I have friends that they speak so often that they don't rehearse because they're speaking so often that that's basically their practice. Like every speech is a practice for the next one. And so that's not me. Uh, that's not most people. And so if you're in that group with me, you got to rehearse. That's the only way to do this. You have to speak a lot to get good at speaking. And then you notice these things, you know? So it's like, I didn't realize that I could like 
break. I thought I had to, if I'm frustrated, I have to stay frustrated. And that felt good for a while. And then one moment somebody let out, I think I remember I was, I was speaking like in Dallas and it was to this like, like really kind of like old school crowd and they were laughing, but almost like dutifully and they weren't like thoroughly enjoying themselves. And then like one woman giggled in like a really high pitched funny way alone after everyone finished laughing and everyone started laughing again and I started laughing and I could sense that they were laughing more because I was laughing. So it's like, that's a moment that's like, Oh, so I can stay frustrated, but then also I can have a warm moment after that. And that's okay. And by the way, if I try it in the next speech and it doesn't work, that's okay. Cause a speech is a ton of little moments that add up to one experience. And so I can try stuff within those little moments. So one way to try stuff is on your own if you're not getting on stage a lot. Um, but that's the only way I know to get good at this or any craft is to do it a lot. I'm curious, did you ever hit a point where you became more of a performer rather than a presenter and need to dial it back? Oh, Justin, <laughs> Justin, Justin, Justin. Were we friends in childhood, <laughs> you would know how freaking weird I was. No, I like there are so many videos that my mom could easily use to blackmail me publicly. Actually, you know what? I would probably just say, go ahead and share them because this is everything I do is public anyway. Um, I was always a performer. Like, and, and so, and by the way, performer is a loaded term that I think people construe as over the top or energetic. But if you're more staid, if you're more emotional, um, you can harness that too. And sometimes that means if you're like an introspective person or even an introvert, a lot of speakers I know are introverted. Um, it's just, it's just that their craft takes them on a stage. So if you're not like me where you suck energy from like the experience of being with people, if you you're alone and that brings you energy or you're quieter or whatever, like maybe you tell a story that has more impact and you pause more. And that's a, that's an element of performance, right? So maybe instead of like a punchy, passionate plea to end your speech, you kind of like say something, you know, like, and that, and that's what we should do. And that should be enough. And that can start right now. Thank you. Right. And like that kind of tapering off. I mean, that was like a really gross, terrible, like <laughs> over the top cheese ball moment. But like, hopefully it conveyed what I'm trying to say, which is like, you can find ways to just be a performed version of yourself instead of a, what you think of as a performer, which is kind of like a ham and that is totally who I am, right? So like I'm perpetuating the stereotype, but it doesn't have to be how you perform. Yeah, I think that's such an important note to to um, address because I am not a ham and I'm not a performer. And I think we can almost take those excuses and use them to prevent us from pursuing something. So I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because I would be more on the emotional side um, as an introvert. But that's not to say that I can't do it either or other um introverts can't speak on stage. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. Like look at Shane Snow from Contently. He's such a masterful storyteller, has no over the top, like very little volume differentiation throughout the speech and what he's saying. Like, but he, and now he and I are working together quite often on our speeches. We talk about our ideas a lot. And like, I know one of the things he wants to improve is, is his performance. So I think he can even harness it more, but like he's an even keel, almost quiet, soft-spoken guy, but he's very inquisitive and he uses that. You know, you can see it even just naturally without him trying to do it consciously with his facial expressions and his pauses and the, the, the like emotional punches aren't through passion. They're through silence. And like his next step is to harness that and be proactive about it. It's the same for you. And I go back to rehearsing with video. It's like finding just the way you would naturally 
present this story as you and be like, oh, interesting. So I'm kind of this way. How can I use that? How can I harness it? So it's back to one of my like favorite things on this in this discussion, which is those moments where you feel you're in full control. You're not manipulating the room. You're not manipulating yourself, but you're like aware of and able to then be proactive about all these parts and pieces. So one of those things that you should be in control of is if you're quieter, if you're introspective, if you're inquisitive, it's knowing that and then learning how to use that and like bring it out more forcefully. Does, does that make sense? Makes complete sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is why I wanted to do this because I'm so in my head about all this stuff that it's just spewing out right now. <laughs> I never get to talk about this stuff. No, this is, I think it just shows us that this is, this really is a craft and um, takes hours and years to really master, but we can start from anywhere. Uh, but I'm also wondering if there are any resources, you know, of course, practice is really important, but if there are any resources as far as um, anything that you've used in the past to improve or study or watch. So I use a couple things that I've kind of built or have been given, um, like kind of like mental frameworks and heuristics. Um, my favorite one publicly uh, that's publicly available is from Tamsin Webster. So she has a methodology called the Red Thread, and she has a YouTube series called Find the Red Thread. So Tamsin Webster, find the Red Thread, uh, search it on YouTube or go to her website and subscribe. It's amazing. And she she does very, very short videos. And each one is like a value payload. There's just so much in there. And she's really good with examples. Um, and so she is somebody who can help you with the structure, the performance, all the elements of your talk and, and your big idea. Um, you know, I think one of the exercises that I found most helpful is trying to extract what I think are the beats or the blocks or like the framework of other people's speeches. So like appreciating the moments but also trying to say like, yeah, while they're a great speaker and I can learn from them, like I liked minute 10. What did they do in minute 10 to set up this story? Oh, they were drawing a dichotomy between everybody in education sitting in the room thinks that they're all from small pockets of education that differ. And so he starts by drawing his hands to the left and saying whether you're a bus driver to the right or a nutritionist. So now he's established bus drivers to the left, nutritionists to the right. Okay, great. Every time he comes back to those two people, he goes to those motions. Left is this group, right is that group. And then over time, he's trying to draw a conclusion that they're actually very similar. And he stops doing that. He starts drawing it closer to the middle until he's just pointing to the room with his palms up straight in front of him. It's like, I have no idea if that just felt natural to him or if he actually created that proactively. But I do know that I can look at it and see if I can learn from it, right? So it doesn't matter what their intent was. What matters is my intent is to like, beg, borrow, and steal my way towards, you know, understanding the parts and pieces and then graft on who, who I am and what I know to be true about me through rehearsal onto those things. Right. And together that creates like my original speech. And you were teaching some people too, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is so front of mind for me, Justin, cause like I, for the first time, so the management company that I'm now signed to, so Drew's agency, um, no longer exists. Uh, we all chose to go our separate ways. It was, I think, um, I was very successful under his tutelage and then scaling it meant he had to stop speaking. So he chose that wasn't the path for him. Um, so we still talk every month and help each other's speeches, but now I'm signed to another management company and their clients are often referred to me as like a speaker coach. So now I'm actually trying to teach this and codify it. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I didn't realize how much of a black box this truly is for people. You know, a lot of it is just gut feel plus fame equals profit question mark, right? It's like very, <laughs> squishy. Um, 
or I have to be a bigger expert in the room than everybody else. Um, so there's a lot of misnomers and I'm trying to debunk that with some of my, some of my clients. Yeah, this has been really helpful. I just want more. So please help us more. This is, this is just really fascinating and also inspiring, but also (laughs) daunting in a really good way. I mean, this is, it's a really exciting path to pursue and it's clear. It's not something that you can just jump into easily. It's something that is challenging, which many of us are seeking. We're seeking the next challenge. So A, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do this because I, A, uh, A, A then A, that's the, that's the alphabet. So A and A, so triple A. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. Also know that I, I'm looking back at this episode and I'm horrified at how much I spoke because it's like not how I run my show. Uh, but I do hope there's some value in here. And if anyone listening has further questions about public speaking, maybe I can do like a follow-up episode uh, where we all get back together and like any questions you continue to have is that both of you are growing your careers melded together with any questions the listeners have. We could do like a second version of this. That's if people find value in this, if they're like, Oh my gosh, Jay, please stop talking. I understand that too. <laughs> that would be really fun. I hope we can do that. <laughs> I hope so too. Cause then the alternative is Jay, please stop talking. And I kind of talk for a living. So yeah, that's not, that's not going to work. That'd be a good name for the podcast. Jay, please stop talking. <laughs> and i really do mean that i just i can't stand how much i talked in this episode i'm just gonna leave it at this this is where i normally narrate uh some kind of outro but i'll just say thank you for listening this far if you made it here you are truly insane but i love you for it Uh, and i'll talk to you next time see ya